0: all right so the sermon let's dive into ecclesiastes chapter 4 i hope that you guys have enjoyed this this very interesting book so far um so that's on page six sixteen the red pew bibles if you what would like to turn there should be the verses behind me as you're turning there uh, the church is not a building nor is a church an institution primarily right the church is not like the rotary club where you get to be on the membership rolls because of xyz things you gave money or this or that that's not what defines or identifies what the church is the church is comprised of people being the church is more than just making a really good sunday service happen The Christian church on this earth is intended to be the very presence of Jesus on earth. This is why Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. We're the representation of Jesus on earth through our actions. We are are the, um, the citizens of his kingdom. He is our king. We are his citizens representing on this earth together a different way of life a different kind of way of of when you think about what it means to be a human being living in this broken world, the Christian church beneath God's kingdom as citizens in his kingdom, we are to represent the heavenly way of life, life in heaven. This is why Jesus in his famous prayer said, may your will be done on earth, finish it for me, as it is in heaven. That's how we are to live. And so this past three weeks, we've been sitting in the teacher's classroom. That's how the author of Ecclesiastes describes himself as the teacher. And he's been grabbing our hand and inviting us into his classroom as he walks us through the wisdom that he has um, gained in his life through observation, even by participation. And he's presenting to us those two ways of life. The way of life under the sun, separated from God, which he calls continually meaningless, 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 meaningless. But he shows us glimpses of the way of life with God, beneath God, and the joy and the the, the purpose and the meaning that is found in that life. And so today we're doing that once again. Uh, We'll have an interesting journey this morning. Uh, We're gonna see some of his conclusions as he observes more of the life under the sun and also um, the life with God, beneath God. We're gonna be looking at how that life was also expressed in the New Testament church. And We're going to go back in time to the early African church, about 170 or so years after Jesus, to see a fascinating way of life, these early Christians in the Roman Empire, right in North Africa there. Sound good? You guys awake? You ready? Good. Let me uh, me pray for our time. Holy Spirit, you have obviously been present this morning, and we just ask that your voice will continue to be speaking to us, Lord. That our hearts would be soft to receive this morning. Lord, that you would convict, you would encourage, you would um, you would set just that fire deep in our bones, Lord. Lord, build that fire in us this morning, Lord. Give us a vision of what it means to be your, your son and your daughter and your kingdom living in this broken world. Lord, stir in us a vision for that, Lord. You have equipped us with your spirit in this community, even here at this church to, to, to be a glimpse of your kingdom in this city of Wilmington that so desperately needs it. So Lord, I pray that this sermon would just be not just words to, to, to hear and forget about, but Lord, would be means by which your spirit just stirs a fire within us to be your ambassadors, Lord, to our neighbors and our family in this city. We love you so much. Lord, continue to make your presence manifest here today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So beginning in in chapter 4, this is a word of the Lord. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. The teacher here speaks of oppression that happens in this world. It's so harsh and so uh, uh, bitter He says, it would be better to not have been born than to essentially be beneath oppression and to be suffering beneath oppression. Lest you think this is the only place that scripture speaks about oppression, Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's not just a, 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 a rebuke of oppression. It's saying, go out and do something about it when you see it. Don't stand by idly if you see somebody taking advantage of. Go and correct it, because that's the heart of God. Psalm 72, verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor oppressor. That is a call, even a prayer for God to show up and to do something, and to deliver his wrath against the oppressor. There is a slew of verses, Exodus 23, 6-7, Deuteronomy 28, 47-48, through through Psalm 9, verse 9, Proverbs fourteen thirty-one, Psalm thirty-four forty-four, eighty-two ninety-one, 44, 82, 91, Psalm 103, 146, Proverbs 22, Isaiah 10, I can keep going. On and on and on and on and on, there's scriptures present saying God is opposed to oppression, he hates oppression, and he himself is after it to cease it in this earth now if we want to define oppression it's defined as an excessive force of power against another that causes harm now there's no secret in our american history even in this land of the free that our you know history has been ripe with struggling from this i mean even our declaration of independence which which says all men are created equal we know that has not quite been the case in our long American history. And we know that for all nations on earth, not just our nation, right? Oppression is a part of this broken world. And it will be until Christ returns. If you want to kind of understand in the umbrella how this fits into our chapter today, the best way to understand it is, you know, looking at oppression in terms of its, um, in all of its various forms as a break in shalom, a break in peace. A break in the wholeness that God created in Genesis 1-2. Because humans were together with God at the beginning. That's how we were created. Yet, soon after sin entered the picture in Genesis chapter 4, we see, we see death take place, physical death. And we also see oppression beginning, the seeds of oppression. A man named, a man named Lamech uh, began taking on multiple wives. And then somebody hurt him and in response to somebody hurting him. He kills that person. He's boasting about his murder to his multiple wives, right? That's the seeds of somebody gaining power and boasting at it to even the murder of somebody else and gathering multiple wives for his own pleasure, right? And that happens so quick, soon after the fall. Oppression is a part of the way of life under the sun because we've lost the reality of of all human beings being equal image bearers of God. Whenever that idea surfaces in a nation, in a culture, in a society, it has the power to change everything. It has continually in human history, and it will continually in human history when that reality surfaces in preaching and in teaching but even more so in how we treat others and how a group of people up and against the strings of their culture defies the oppression taking place and they begin treating those who are oppressed as their equal as their brother as their sister put a pin in that conversation as we're going to go back to these things later in our sermon because there is a healing balm for this right and i have a hopefully a, a word for us here at this church as he moves on in verse four, I saw that all labor and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. The essayist uh, uh, Joseph Epstein said, once said, he said, of all the seven deadly sins, envy is no fun at all, right? Envy is no fun at all, it's an interesting observation. Envy can drive you mad, quite literally drive you mad. Psychologists have actually recorded that those lost in the deep chains of envy, it can actually make you sick inside, like physically nauseous and sick. Like oppression, and here's a common thread here, Envy is a break in relationship. It's a break in community between people. It can create a fakeness to our relationships. If we have family members or friends or coworkers who have something you want, maybe a lifestyle, maybe a marriage that you're envious of, or a, a friendship, a bond, material items, or whatever it might be that you're envious of, you can find yourself working hard when you're around them to act like or pretend like, hey, I have that too, and mine's better than yours when I mean, you don't have it at all to make yourself kind of feel better as if you have that, but it's just really envy inside that drives you. And to some degree, we know that social media is just one behemoth of an envy factory, right? Right? You don't post the pictures when you get up in the morning and there's the rings under your eyes and your hair is like matted to the left. You're like, ugh. Like you, you post it when you look great, you know? You, you, you wake up and your hair's all coming like your best smile. And you know, the crooked tooth is not there. You're like doing this one. And you do whatever it takes to look the best for your social media, right? Because what you see when you scroll is all the best of everybody else. And it stirs the envy. It says, I wish my life was that happy. I wish that my family was that happy. Because that family, look at all those pictures. They must be happy all the time. They must never have anything wrong in their life. It's one massive envy factory. And in verse 5 here, the author of Ecclesiastes refers to this. He throws in the fool, folds his hands, and ruins himself. And, you know, the the, the Hebrew behind that in the original tongue is is, is kind of, it's it's associated to verse 4, That this this kind of envy, this foolish act of, of envy. If you sit and kind of rest in that, it has like a cannibalistic reality to it. What do I mean by that? It, it begins eating you up, like you're eating your own self up, right? You ruin yourself. You, you begin eating your own like, insides up when you get lost in envy. So the third thing he observes here in this life under the sun, that is foolishness and, and meaningless, a chasing after the wind, is radical individualism and isolation. This is really, you know, he, I don't know, if, you know how um, American these verses really are. It's, it's pretty, pretty stunning. Verse 7, he says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So we get a glimpse, like a little little story here, a little, little mini narrative thrown in here of a man who was by himself, no family around, no son, nor 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 brothers, and he's increasing his own wealth, and the wealth that he's increasing, he's never actually happy with. And the wealth is only really for himself. And that's the vision that he has for his wealth. His eye is not content with what he has, he keeps working for it to increase it all for himself. The teacher says this is meaningless, right? And we see this today in various forms of a, in our own country, right, this kind of like hyper-individualism where the world revolves around us. Again, to tie the threads to the two things before, there's a break in relationship in people if that life is pursued just like envy, just like oppression. If, if your work and your toil is for me, 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 and I, 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 right? What about your neighbors? What about those around you? What about your impact in the community in which you live? That vision is not there. It's me, and it's I, and it's me, and it's I, I, I. That kind of life isn't in America, right? Definitely not. It's definitely not encouraged in our country. There's a balm throughout all of this, And we're going to look at the bomb here in in, in 9 through 12 that the teacher places before us. He says there's a different way to think about things. He could have kept going on about all the different ways in a broken world in which people are divided and people are against each other and people are selfishly just, you know, living only for themselves. He could have gave a whole litany of of ways in which we do that in a fallen world. But what, what he does, he kind of stops right there. And in verse 9... He, he gets his paintbrush out, all right? And he begins painting a picture of a different kind of life, a life together, a life where people are together, where people are not hurting each other or destroying each other or oppressing each other or being envious of each other, only living for themselves. In verse 9, he kind of jumps right into this vision. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls, and no one has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You might have heard this in the in a, in a wedding ceremony, right? Very famous wedding text. Kind of, I guess you could say, has something to do with weddings, but there's, it's there. There's a lot more going on, though, than just, you know, a, a sentimental wedding verse here. This is the teacher's answer to the brokenness in the world that divides, the brokenness that creates all these disruptions in this life under the sun. He doesn't say this is a life kind of beneath God in these verses, but clearly, if you look at the whole book, the language is he's associating this, this vision with life beneath God, as we'll see as we continue throughout the book. So yeah, in a book about meaninglessness in this world, the meaning provided here is people together. Two people together have a better return for their work rather than only one person working for themselves. If there's someone around you and if you fall, there's someone to pick you up. You are warmer together than you are apart. Two together to defend themselves against anyone trying to take advantage of them. Togetherness is how actually God intended to Uh, for us to live, for humanity to exist, togetherness was his idea and his goal for us, his design for us. Sin is what breaks us apart. Oppression breaks humanity apart. Envy brings us against one another. Radical individualism causes us to live for ourselves and ourselves alone. And the biblical story, in so many ways, is one long story of God seeking to bring humanity back to how he originally created us. To be with him, loving him, enjoying each other, and being together in a world where there is no more brokenness. Over and over, the scriptures cast a vision of God gathering his people back to himself after they had been scattered due to sin, as he continues his kingdom project in this world to reconcile us back to God and to one another. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Hebrew Scriptures. This was written during the time when the northern kingdom of Israel had already been kicked out of the land. They are in Babylon where the writer, the prophet Ezekiel himself, also is. And as he's um, writing, he, he sees this vision of a future version of God's people, a future version of Israel. Right, because um, centuries before, God's people had been split in half, two different kingdoms. Because mostly, because under King Solomon there was oppression, essentially almost like slave labor um, for all of his grand building projects that nobody wanted to take part in anymore. That was one big piece of it. This is his vision of the future for God's people, beginning in in, Ezekiel thirty-seven, fifteen through seventeen. It says. The word of the Lord came to me. He says, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with them. That's the southern kingdom. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with them. That's the northern kingdom. And join them together. uh, Join them one to another into one stick that they may be one in your hand. Later, he says, when this happens, God's servant David will rule over them while they obey him and walk in his ways after they are given a new heart and a new flesh because of the spirit of God that will be given to them. And as this happened, Ezekiel says, all the nations throughout the world are going to recognize that God is there and that God is doing it. that he is the God of this earth. Beginning in verse 24 to 25 he says, my servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give my servant Jacob where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. David my servant shall be their prince forever. My dwelling shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel where my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is pointing towards, ultimately towards Jesus Christ. And many of these things are glimpsed today, not in full, but they're present today, the already not yet kind of tension. But when Jesus showed up, the son of David, whose death on the cross dealt with the punishment of the sin problem, he absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. The result was that we did receive that new, fle- that new heart of flesh after we place our faith and we begin following after Jesus Christ. Our, our hearts begin that long process of being renewed day by day, hour by hour, as we yearn for more of God as we follow Jesus. Not as individuals, though. There's no such thing, right, as, as becoming a Christian and just staying alone in your living room, right? We don't see that in scripture. Because God brings us together as his people on this earth. On Pentecost in in Acts chapter 2, the spirit originally fell on the original followers of Jesus in the upper room. Leading to the gospel being proclaimed to all the massive crowds outside. People from every tongue, tribe and nation um, uh, around the Roman Empire. uh, Thousands becoming Christians on that one day alone. And I want to see, I want you guys to see this, this togetherness that instantly happens, right, when they see Jesus and they're together in Christ. Listen to how they lived. Okay, keep the words of the teacher in mind. We just read, okay? Think of life as, as it should be beneath God in this world, okay? And, and just listen to these verses. Some of you are really familiar with these. Just listen to this. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. As they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, with the result that the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I like to call this voluntary communism. Can I do that? It's kind of what we see, you know. Nobody was making them do this. They wanted to. They were compelled to when they met Jesus. Because the Christian church is most powerful when we're living in that way. That's when those signs and wonders show up. That's when the love and generosity show the power of the spirit shows up in the community when the church is living in that way. That's when people are drawn and people are added to the church when we are living in that way. Right now, we're still living in between the times. Christ has not returned yet. But in this gap of time when the forgiveness of sins is available to us, In this gap of time after Christ who rose from the dead and who is still giving the spirit of God to those who seek it, we as Christians, wherever we are found, are to be living in the ways and in the manners of his kingdom and not participating in the disordered ways of life that we saw at the beginning of chapter four in Ecclesiastes. The togetherness of the church has always been a powerful witness of the gospel, the powerful witness of of the presence of God's spirit in this world. And I really, truly believe, especially in America right now, the time is ripe for us to dig our heels into this and ask questions as to how we can embrace such radical community. I mean radical community. In a way that we can be a maybe even a strange light. People say, that's that's weird, that's confusing how these Christians are living to a world that desperately needs the light of the gospel. All the while being advocates against things like oppression and speaking against radical individualism and living a life that is upstream against those things. A life of sacrifice rather than selfish envy of our neighbors. And this is why I want to go back in time. All right? can We do a little time travel this morning to ancient times, to ancient Christians. I love church history. If you haven't read church history, you should read church history. It's fascinating. You should read stories in church history. This takes all. This takes place in a town called Carthage, all right, in North Africa, in the Roman Empire, about eighteen hundred years ago from today. In those days, there was something called Roman collegias, all right, and they existed throughout the empire. These were organizations that, if you paid money for, okay, think of dues as such, and also um, you have to donate an item of sorts. Uh, usually jars of wine or something like that every month. You would have access to a community of people, to relationships, to friendships, to monthly feasting, kind of like friendship dues, honestly, in a way. <laughs> um, monthly feasting together, so maybe pagan worship you know, activity. Um, but also, it's kind of like a way of insurance, life insurance. If you died, the money that you were giving um, toward this would go to your own burial expenses, um, they were all guided by a constitution, right? But these associations in the Rome Roman Empire were a little bit self-serving. Um, in Carthage, like anywhere else, um, you know, you, you, if, if you were the richest, for example, you could kind of break all the rules because you had all the money. Okay. Uh, sometimes people would go take others to be buried, and they would say, "Yeah, we're going to bury him in this way," but they bury him in the cheaper way, and they pocket money for themselves. Right? There was all this kind of, like, a little bit of intensity to make sure, like, nobody's frauding each other because that was a normal thing to take place. Um, so that was happening in this town of Carthage. And there was a, a man named Tertullian, a early church father, who was trying to defend Christianity to his countrymen and to his neighbors and those around. So as he wrote this thing, we call it the, the, the Apology today, he took that idea of the associations in Rome and and the church, and he said, you know, I, I wanna talk about the church in that language because maybe my countrymen can understand who these strange Christians are if I talk about the church kind of in that, you know, and those, using those words and those illustrations. And so as the Christians lived in Carthage, okay, this is a little tiny glimpse of their way of life, okay? Um, it was upstream against Rome. Unlike the Roman associations, these early Christians didn't meet monthly. They met every week, often multiple times a week. At these meetings, prayer served at its very core. Where Christians were said to gather in corporate prayer, but not quiet prayer. He said that the prayers, uh, often people express almost like a violent desire to God, just on their knees, just weeping and crying out for their countrymen, for their city, for their empire, for their other people in their church. Just, just deep, loud prayers marked these early Christian meetings. They had some scriptures available. Sometimes they were read aloud. Um, they weren't really available. And so a lot of people that had some memorized would, would quote what they had memorized. Um, they would talk a lot about how to be like Jesus, how to live um, like him in an empire that did not. There were no dues to be a part of this church. And this was the radical part. Because in the Roman associations, only the rich people could be a part of them because of the money. The poor people could not. The problem was the majority of Rome was poor. So the majority of Rome were excluded but not in these early churches. The poor and rich alike could be part of them freely. How could that happen? Because they believed in Jesus and were baptized. That was it. They were a part of this family now. Even women and children were part of the group. Nowhere else in Rome did you see rich, poor, women, children, all different ethnicities, like former slaves, current slaves, current rich people, nobles, all together. It just wasn't happening anywhere in the Roman empire but it was happening in the church. And people saw it and said, huh, now that's a different way to live. That's a different way to live. Members donated out of their generosity. The money was distributed to all who were in need. Tuturlian said, in defense of this, he says nothing from God comes with a price. Right, they provided what the Roman Association provided freely for any member who needed it, right? The poor would have their burials paid for in full. Right, and these—all who were part of these—were they were boys and girls who lacked property, parents, and then slaves uh, who had grown old, shipwrecked mariners, and they would even go to the prisons and minister to those in the prisons. Right, and as the prayer was the core of the meeting, a meal was the center of these gatherings. It wasn't quite what we do now with our wax bread and little cup of juice that we have here. This was a full meal, right, and it was a meal that actually provided food to those who didn't have a lot of food. And so they were, you know, made sure there was restraint and make sure everybody had access to the food in modest proportions. They came together with encouragement with, uh, from prayer. Um, many came with prophecies or visions they had or regular things were shared like that amongst these early congregations. And these, these meetings were happening. Neighbors saw this. They couldn't put a finger on understanding it. But here's what Tertullian said. One new convert came in and said, he said, oh." how these Christians, they love each other, and how they're ready to die for each other. A lot of this is noted by historian Alan Crater, right? And he notes that all of this, these early Christians, like the center of their church life, their, uh, their association with their church, it was their life. It was their family, it was their identity. And they thought about themselves living on this earth they were a Christian as part of that community of Christians. And it was a radically different way of living in a broken world within the Roman Empire, right? And it consumed their identity. So why do I share all this? How is it related? Because the teacher observed the things that happened in our broken world. And I'm trying to say the church can be an example of an ordered, peaceful place. A glimpse of heaven on earth where the brokenness of this world is not repeated within these walls and that by itself becomes a huge apologetic or a huge defense of the faith because I'm telling you when people see those things here that are different a different way of thinking about our life people are going to say well why why are you living in this way your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven I want to talk about a couple of things on the back end of our sermon now that I think can be just ways that we can do this today. Ways that we can do this today as Emmanuel Church. How can we be that sort of church, like that early church in Africa, in Carthage, that was just kind of mystifying their own communities and neighbors? How can we be that sort of church? Number one, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, one through two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Some translations say your eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a lot of... Versions of 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 the church that have been—it's easy to get distracted today and make it be about various things in our culture today. Right? Um, Our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. He is true north. He is the where our compass is always pointed, what our church is always heading towards, to lift up high, to bring glory to, because he said, when I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself. Our eyes as a church must be fixated on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Number two, how can we be these people together living in a different way here as a a defense, as a light, in that Ecclesiastes 4 kind of way? I think as well as we heard at the beginning, before our sermon. Being radically generous to each other with our money and our time. What we refer to as tithing, the word literally means 10%. Um, It's a helpful kind of word if you want to, you know, a principle perhaps, but it's not exactly reflected in the New Testament. As we saw in these early Christians, as you saw in that passage in Acts chapter 2, something happened when they became a Christian. They realized what they had It wasn't theirs. But it was given to them. If there was somebody in need next to them, well, this isn't mine anyway. So if I have excess and you have a lack, well, of course I'm gonna meet that. This isn't even mine to begin with. This is a gift. Radical generosity. Paul he he encourages generosity in the early church in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, Though you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus had everything in heaven, set it all aside, became a human being, born in the lowest class, one of the lowest classes possible in his world. And this brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter born to a teenage girl who died the most shameful death known to man has given us the riches of salvation, of new life through his spirit. And Paul uses that story to appeal to the generosity of these early Christians towards churches who are in need, uh, but in suffering beneath famine, it says, "Look to Jesus. You see His generosity. Let's give and let's be radical in our generosity. Radical generosity is otherworldly. And I wonder what would happen if all of us were truly generous in that radical way to this church, to one another, like those early Christians." Right, to see this in this building that we have here, to stand not as an empty museum, not as an identity for us as a church, but something that is a, a, a visual representation of the presence of God in the city of Wilmington. To see this building used and treaded upon by our community, a place for the good of the city, a, a true lighthouse of the gospel where people enter and sense the very spirit of God in our midst. And it takes a few dollars to care for this building, but let's see this building become an avenue of our mission, as long as we have it here in Wilmington. Let's see it, friends. I want to see the generosity here where there is none in need in our church family. I I don't want to hear of anybody being in need in this church family. When there's a need, we're going to tell you. And I pray that the Spirit stirs within you the fire of generosity. That says, yeah, I can go without my Starbucks latte this month, sure. Somebody needs help. Surely we can be generous. And I'm I'm just to encourage you. You guys really are the most generous church I've ever heard of. You really are. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but I still know that there's more ways the Spirit of God wants to stir generosity in your hearts. He still wants to, he still will. Number three, a way that we can be this this community together. We need an era where we see multi-ethnic churches. Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10 is clear. There's a vision of heaven where there's not only just one tribe of people before God, but they're from all tribes and they're from all nations, probably even singing in their own tongues, in their own native languages before God the Father, singing his praises and gathered together. That is heaven, so on earth as it is in heaven, these are some Sad statistics, 86.3% of Christian churches are ethnically homogenous. Is that reflective of heaven? Now I understand if you're in a city that is not very multi-ethnic, but friends, Wilmington, as we know, is an extremely diverse city. It is more natural to be segregated by ethnicity, by language, by cultural preferences. It's more comfortable when that, right? The worship styles, if you you go to a church that's the ones that you're comfortable with, well, that's nice. You know, it's cozy there. Go to a church with worship styles that you're not comfortable with because it's from a different ethnicity, it may be uncomfortable for you. And as good Americans, we like to be comfortable, don't we? We like to create environments to where we just feel like, you know, we belong because it's people like us. Let's not do that as a church. That's not heaven. That's not the glimpse that we see in heaven heaven to see that true community is expressed in ecclesiastes in acts chapter 2 that community that we see in carthage in north africa to express the kingdom of heaven in wilmington in the way that is upstream against the american you know idol of comfortability can we please pray for that and pursue that here in this church to my knowledge there's not a whole lot of multi-ethnic churches in the city and I would love to pursue that here. Can you join me, friends, and pray for that and be a part of that here? If you get uncomfortable as you step in that direction, that's okay. I'm telling you, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. You may, you may experience Jesus in a fresh way that you have not experienced before as you step into that. Can I get amen? And lastly, let's be a spirit-powered church. What I mean by that? Like those early Christians, as they cared for one another, they pursued and expected the Spirit to show up at all of their meetings. This is a funny thing I didn't mention earlier, but, um, you know, there's a lot of books on church growth strategy. How are you going to grow a church? How are you going to, you know, well, here's, you know, have the big screens and the, the Holy Spirit smoke machines and have the lasers and all, whatever. Um, you know what the um church growth strategy was for especially in this church in, in carthage and others like it and especially in north africa at the time you know what their church growth strategy was like i imagine a meeting um with the pastors like sharing oh how do you grow in your church oh we did this or did that you know what theirs was it was casting out demons that was their church growth strategy like i'm not kidding you go read about it there's some wild stories People show up to their meetings and they're literally casting demons out of people. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is real. God is real. Jesus is real. The Holy Spirit's present. And people get saved. That was how the church grew, a big piece of it at least. Paul said this in Romans chapter 15. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Let's see his church growth strategy, if you will. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So Paul wasn't saying, I didn't have a, you know, the most elaborate preaching or all my skills. Like, he's like, no, 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 no. This is what Jesus did through me. Let's hear it. By word and deed, that's what Jesus did. By the power of the word, by the power of the deed. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium, just all across the empire, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The kind of community and church that we're talking about this morning, the kind we see in Acts in Carthage, North Africa, They lived in a dependency on the supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of God to be one of the front doorways that people actually have their first encounter with God. None of this is available in our own strength. I can't skill my way into that. We pray and we take steps of faith and take steps of risk and we say, Holy Spirit, be made manifest for your glory and so that people may come to know you and receive healing from you, receive wholeness from you, be delivered from addictions, be delivered from even demonic oppression, that they may know that you truly are the son of God who died for them. All over the world, the Pentecostal church is the fastest growing segment of Christianity, really in history, everywhere, except in the Western Hemisphere. (laughs) Everywhere except the Western Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere, Latin America, even in the Asian countries in the the Middle East, it is exploding. Radical stories of God's power being made manifest. Friends, I think it's going to bleed here. Here. I don't know how it's gonna look. I don't know. All I'm gonna do is I just read stories about it all over the world, and it's just fascinating. I don't know how it's gonna look here, but friends, I just I just want God to show up here. That's all I want. I just want him to be here. I just want the Holy Spirit to draw people and our attention to him and not to me or not to any wonderful skill this church has to offer. I just want people to see Jesus and to be drawn to this community as we live upstream against culture. So as we close this morning, um, I want to just take a few minutes to pray. Covered a lot of ground this morning. Um, we talked about the brokenness of this world and, um, and, and the ways and how those things are meaningless, but the possibilities of Christians living in the kingdom here on earth within a broken culture, providing a different way to think and to see um, uh, this human life beneath Jesus. I want to pray for these things. Um, we'll have people available up front. I'm going to call our worship team to come up now. Um, you know, I, I guess my question is, when we hear these things, and, I, and I, if, if you're a follower with Jesus this morning, you may be saying, yeah, like, yes and amen. How do these things happen? Like, can they happen? Like, my question for you is, like, how much do you really desire this? Like, think of the last time you prayed with such a just struggle before God. Like, that you were just really just on your knees, just, like, fighting and wrestling with him. When has that time been? Because the things that we see in scriptures that were presented today, they're not easy, right? None of this is going to become um, uh, quickly or easily. But I just keep thinking of that fire that so many people in church history have talked about that happened to them. Uh, a fire, I think it was Blaise Pascal, the famous scientist who used to keep a, a little piece of paper in his jacket that just read the word fire on it and his story was a time when he had an encounter with God that he wanted to remember day in and day out and that little slip of paper all it read was fire and he wanted to remember that time that the fire hit him that stirred him so much when he had an encounter with God we want to be a community that is that is present here in Wilmington that people can can meet Jesus here and have an encounter with him so I'm going to pray